0: Coming up on Stew Does America, I know it might seem bad right now, but you can postpone your permanent trip to Tahiti. Yeah, Donald Trump is not out of the presidential race yet. We'll walk you through the state of the election. Then PragerU's Will Witt joins me to explain why we should defend the heroes who defend us every day. This used to be obvious, but it's 2020. And Michael Knowles has a sneaking suspicion that Democrats will try to cheat to win this election. No way, I just can't imagine it. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and rate and review us on iTunes. Helps us out in a big way. Five stars is the appropriate amount of stars. Click like on YouTube if you're watching there before you forget or, you know, I say something that pisses you off. You can get every episode for free on YouTube just by searching for Stew. I'll be the first result. And to be super, 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 super special, You can, of course, subscribe to Blaze TV at blazetv.com slash stew. Use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Plus, you'll save 10 bucks. All right, gather all the boxes of fraudulent mail-in votes you've been collecting. It's time to talk about the election.
1: Stew does America.
0: Okay, let's uh, grab yourself a drink here, okay? Make it a stiff one. Let me start by just ripping the Band-Aid right off. Okay, Donald Trump is not currently winning the election. He's behind. If the election were held today, he would lose. Almost definitely. But here's a little known fact. The election is not being held today. So none of that matters at all. If you're watching the election coverage of the media, you know, you think that this thing is all but over. Right. But is that true? Let's look closely at where we stand, and I'll show you some hope for the Trump campaign here in just a minute. We'll start with a few basic facts. The first one, some people are apparently still having trouble accepting. In 2016, Donald Trump was fairly elected as president of the United States. Mm, This is not easy for the left to, to digest. So, you know, they basically flailed from accusation to accusation, scandal to scandal, desperate attack to desperate attack in attempt to reverse this result. But it happened. He was elected. I'm sorry. He's still president. And there's only one way to change that: get more electoral votes than he does next time. Simple. Number two, Donald Trump is currently behind in the polls. You may have heard this news. And you might say, well, that's what everyone said last time. And that's true. Uh, and he still won, and that's true too. But here's a fact number three: Trump is behind his 2016 pace. The story of 2016 was one where Clinton would get a solid lead after some sort of an event, maybe high single digits, after something like the convention or the Access Hollywood tape and then watch it slowly erode until things basically tied back up. You can see it on the graph here. It happened about eight times from October of 2015 to Election Day 2016. The good news for Trump was the election happened at the right time in that cycle. Now for those saying the polls were wrong last time, remember. They really weren't. I mean, the final real clear politics average was Clinton plus 3.2. The actual vote was Clinton plus 2.1. It did miss, but by a very small amount, certain states were a little different. The story of 2020, though, is much different. So far, Biden has had a mid to high single digit lead for, well, basically forever. I mean, there has not been a single moment in the campaign where Trump has been able to tie it up or really come all that close. So there's a reason why Trump is firing his campaign manager for an example. He's seeing this stuff and he knows he's in a tough spot. To be clear, a lot of that tough spot is not his fault. Yes, the media is against him. And yes, he was hit with a once in a century sort of event that no president was going to be fully prepared for. And of course, Trump creates his own share of problems occasionally as well, as is very well documented by the media. Now, my job here is not to sit here and depress you to death. Not what I'm trying to do. But I do think it's important for us all to kind of sit here and face reality. We can yell kind of fake news, whatever, over and over again, every day until November. But if things don't improve for Trump from this moment, he will lose. And he will probably lose badly if it doesn't get any better than this. But things can improve, can't they? He's not out of this game yet, and he's not out of striking distance. In fact, the picture is probably a little better than you've been led to believe. Let's look at a little more detail. Here's what the polls tell us the electoral map looks like right now from real clear politics. Now, I don't believe this exactly. This is just their uh, current state stat, state of the race. Um, I'm just giving you a worst case scenario and a kind of a worst case starting point. Right now, Biden has two hundred and twelve solid electoral votes. Trump at one fifteen solid with two hundred and eleven electoral votes undecided. I wouldn't leave that many states undecided, but I don't think there's much to disagree with in these solid states. So let's zoom in a little bit. First of all, I'm going to distribute a few of the easier states. Trump gets the ones he's already ahead in in the polls, like Missouri, Georgia, Iowa and Texas. And then I'm going to give Biden, Minnesota, Nevada and New Hampshire. Trump won uh, last time without those states, and he's way behind in the polls in Minnesota and New Hampshire. Nevada, he's in within striking distance, but he really didn't even need it last time anyway. So we'll give it to Biden for sake of argument. Uh, This gives us an updated electoral count of Biden 232, Trump 185. Uh, Yeah, we gave him Georgia, too, uh, as compared to that last map. This leaves us with seven states to talk about Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Florida, Pennsylvania and North Carolina, all of which Trump won last time. And all of them he is currently trailing. Suboptimal is how I would I would state that. But it's not the end of the world. Remember, when we're talking about uh, how in 2016, Trump would fall behind after an event and then close the gap. Remember that? Well, one year ago today, he was at kind of a low point in his campaign. The Democratic Convention had just ended and the country was basking in the pure energy that was Tim Kaine. Oh, man. Do you remember those moments? But we know Trump came back to win all of the states I just listed. So where does he compare to last time? How does this work? In a few of these states, Trump is actually outperforming his 2016 numbers. For example, Wisconsin, perhaps his most surprising win of 2016, he trailed by five points. or actually five and a half in 2016 at this point. Today, he's only behind by five. In Pennsylvania, he trailed by 8.3 points and one in 2016. Now he only trails by six. Trump is basically polling the same in Ohio as he was in 2016. He trailed by 1.4 back then, and now he trails by 2.3. But remember, he eventually blew Clinton out there. In Michigan and North Carolina, he's within four points of where he was in 2016. I mean, look, that means there's work to do, but he's not in a vastly different position than last time. One good news cycle or burst of good news, and he's right there. The biggest two problems, though, I'm saving for last. Arizona is a state Trump won by three and a half points. At this point in the campaign, he was down by a half point. So he was able to move the polls about four points in this time period in 2016. However, in 2020, he currently trails by 3.7. He doesn't have to win Arizona electorally to win. But if he's struggling there, he's in big trouble. I mean, it's a it's a red leaning state. He's lagging basically in every measure compared to last time. The other and by far the biggest problem for Donald Trump right now is Florida. He led the polls pretty consistently in 2016 over Hillary, though it was close. He was up by 0.6 points at this point in 2016. Florida is a state that gets polled a lot, so the data there is usually pretty good. He now trails by 6.2. Some of this is because of one truly terrible poll from Quinnipiac, but still, he's pretty clearly behind. When you look at these last seven states, Biden would need 37 or 38 electoral votes to put away the election. So Trump can afford to lose two or three of these states and still be okay. But winning without Florida, while it's not impossible, is not realistic. So what can change? Well, number one, a big news event can happen. Something can grab the news cycle in a way that helps Trump in the election. Number two, Biden could really suck when people start paying attention. Remember, people haven't started paying attention yet. That's different than other election cycles. There's a reason that the Democrats are hiding Joe Biden in the closet. This is a real possibility that he just walks out on stage and screws this up. Will he drool on the podium for nine straight minutes during debate? I don't know. It's possible, though. These two things, though, are always present in any election. But they're not as common as you think that to turn the tide. I mean, Hillary got the Access Hollywood tape a couple of weeks before the election and she's still lost. You have to account for the possibility of this type of game changing event when you're kind of war gaming an election. But if it was uh, all the hope for Trump, if this was the only way he could win, I would believe the 90 percent loss predictions you see around the Internet. What makes this different is number three. The coronavirus coming under control. Look, there's no coincidence here. The two biggest problem states for Trump are Arizona and Florida. That's where we've seen large and recent outbreaks. Both of these states seem to have turned the corner now when it comes to cases. If they're in good shape in November and the economy is starting to thrive again, Trump's misfortunes now can totally reverse and turn into fortunes later on. That can happen quickly. For example, regardless of how you're feeling about COVID vaccines yourself, Trump has led the way embarking on the most ambitious vaccine development project in the history of the world. If one of these things work and they show up before the election, it's going to be impossible to avoid giving Trump a lot of credit for it. Assuming, you know, he doesn't name Jenny McCarthy secretary of needles or something right before the announcement. If covid were to feel like a historical relic, like mostly in the past, largely under control, Trump might still win easily. That's how big a deal this is. Forget what you read on Twitter. You might have the impression that everyone in the country thinks COVID is no big deal and everyone hates masks, but that's not the electorate. There is an opportunity here to win people over, but time is quickly running out. No matter what the media says, Trump is still in the game. He's not too far behind where he was in 2016, and he still holds some control over the biggest thing that could help turn this race around. Sure, the media is going to try to stop him at all costs. Yes, that is true. But this is where Trump thrives, right? The odds are against him, but it's not impossible to overcome them. It's going to be an intense three months from here on out. Thank God there's such a thing called alcohol.
1: Does
0: We're all looking for ways to save some cash. When's the last time you look at how much you're spending on car insurance every month or homeowners insurance? I mean, I I don't know. You set those rates and then, you know, you just pay them and it sucks every month, but you don't really pay that close of attention uh, to it. Now's the time to check out Gabby and see about getting a lower rate for the exact same coverage you already have. And that's important because if you start shopping around for car insurance, a lot of times you can get a better rate, but you're not covered in nearly the same way as you used to be. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you a comparison of your current coverage, your exact coverage, with 40 of the top insurance providers in the country. You can do it a couple ways. You can link your insurance account. Um, in about two minutes, you'll be able to see the quotes for the exact same coverage you currently have. Or you can just send them you know, the details of your uh, insurance plan. You can scan them in or whatever, and they can go through it and do it uh, really easily. Gabby customers save $825 a year on average. If they can't find you fresh savings, they'll let you know – Uh, So you can, you know, relax knowing that you had the best rate out there. When I went through the Gabby process, that's what it told me. It said, hey, hey, dummy. Uh, And it didn't say, hey, dummy, but I just I just felt like it was judging me. No, I said, hey, uh, hey, uh, Stu, you know what? Your uh, rate's pretty good. Congratulations! And now I know that like I'm not just leaving money on the table. That's a good feeling. It's a totally free feeling to have, and it's probably not going to be the way it turns out for you because most people have crappy insurance with crappy rates. Uh, I got lucky. It's totally free to uh, check your rate, and there's no obligation. It just takes two minutes right now to see how much you can save on your car and homeowner's insurance. Go to gabby.com/stew. That's g-a-b-i.com/stew. Make sure to use the slash stew part because that's how they know you like this stupid show. It's g-a-b-i i stew. joined now by Michael Knowles of The Daily Wire. He's the host of The Michael Knowles Show, uh, the book club at PragerU, and co-host of The Verdict with Ted Cruz. Michael, thanks for com- coming on the program. It's been a while, man.
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate
0: it. Good to see you again. Uh, you know... I was uh, I caught your podcast yesterday and it was just fantastic. Uh, you had such a great breakdown of the differences between conservatives and the, the left. And you talked about it in in the way of the difference between how conservatives think about philosophy and the left talks about how this
1: is basically just a science. Can you walk the audience through some of this? Absolutely. I think this has become a uh pretty apparent now because the left in particular during the COVID lockdowns is using science as the justification for every policy that they want. Mm-hmm. So when they tell us not to wear masks, it's because of science. When they tell us to wear masks, it's because of science. When they say that we can't <laughs> protest the lockdowns, it's because of science. When they say we should protest for BLM, it's because of science. Right? And obviously science can't be saying all of these various things at once. But this, this goes back well over a hundred years this uh, this issue on the left of using science as the justification for their political philosophy actually goes all the way back to Karl Marx and Hegel. It goes back to this idea and probably was most clearly popularized by Marx, that they had discovered the science of history. Mm. So no longer was history just, as we say, one damn thing after another, but there was a science to it. We were all progressing toward this one end. Uh, That's where the term progressive comes from. And so if you stand in the way of this clear progress, you've either got to be a complete idiot or you've got to be evil. You've got to have bad intentions. And that's why they say you're on the wrong side of history or the arc of history bends toward justice or all of the kind of progressive slogans we have. And that's also why we're not allowed to disagree with them. So we're we're told that in the science of history that now we have the political science, which replaced the older political philosophy. We have the social sciences, which were created at the universities, basically to fund this new political project with information and and to buttress that, that work. So you're not allowed to disagree because... It's just a man in a lab coat telling you what the one precise answer is. But that is never how politics has worked. Politics is just how we all get along together in society. All, going all the way back to ancient Greece, we know that politics is about uh, asking ourselves these eternal questions. What is justice? What is equality? What is liberty? What sort of trade-offs do we want in our own self-government? That's the conservative way. It's why you know uh, you saw George Bush at John Lewis's funeral saying, John and I disagreed, but you know, in the America that I I like, we can disagree and get along as, as Americans. Whereas then you heard Barack Obama's eulogy and he said, the Republicans are dirty, terrible racists. They're trying to destroy your lives and we need to go out there and beat them. I think those two messages sum up the two approaches. And I think we need to stop pretending that leftist politics and leftist preferences is some wonderful, totally agreed upon science that we can't question. Of course, that's not the case. And we, the people have the right to raise, raise questions, engage in debate and determine how we want to live our lives. Yeah, it's interesting thinking
0: about it in that sort of context because it feels to me as we go down this road further and further and dealing with the left and they seem more and more irrational – That the the power of persuasion is less powerful. Even when you talk to people and you make points that are clearly superior, and they might even give you the point, they never come around, it seems like, more and more on the left. And that's because they do see this in this way, that there's there's an end point we're going to. Your little rational point that happens to make logical sense
1: can't get in the way of that. Right. I think probably the most frequent question I get in the mailbag on the show, or if I'm out giving a speech back when we were allowed to go do that sort of thing, (laughs) the most frequent question I get is, what are the big issues? How do you convince the left on this issue or that issue? You know, on abortion or taxes or deregulation or healthcare, whatever. And the problem is, you can't, (laughs) or or you can in only rare circumstances. When you're at the level of just day-by-day political issues, there's so much beneath that at the cultural and philosophical and ultimately religious level that you've actually got to go for the first principles. You got to say, okay, what is our country? Right now, we're having a big debate over what our country is. Is our country hopelessly racist and bigoted and terrible and we got to tear down George Washington? Or is our country basically good and we want to preserve our traditions and improve them where we can? That's a a first principles question. What is man? What are we here for? What is our purpose? What is equality? What is liberty? What what are these these big questions in our lives? I think that's where you've got to have the question. Uh, You know, if you're just trying to tinker around the edges of an issue, you're not going to get very far. You know, Jonathan Haidt, the social scientist, speaking of social science, Mm. uh, put out a study a few years ago where he observed that the right understands the left much better than the left understands the right. And I think a lot of that goes down to first principles. We can describe as conservatives the progressive point of view. Something tells me that most progressives would not be able to describe the conservative point of view. And I think, you know, if, if we're going to try to en- engage them on this issue, uh, or if we're going to try to engage them in politics at all, we have to move down a little bit deeper and be able to articulate what it is we believe about the country, because I think that ultimately could be much more persuasive.
0: Now You've made this point really well on the podcast yesterday. I actually wrote the phrase down. You said it was the great conservative constellation, essentially, that we that rationality is on our side and we hope it eventually wins. Um, yeah. I, do we chase that too much? Because I feel I one of the reasons I got into this business is because I love that moment. I love that moment where I have the stat that disproves the other guy or I have the argument that, you know, that shows it shines light on some issue that maybe someone's not seeing. That seems almost like an empty pursuit lately
1: it does because, you know, the other side doesn't want to listen very much. I mean, you heard Hillary Clinton, right? The, the last Democratic nominee for president said, you can't be civil with people who disagree with you. I mean, she, a- she actually said, you yeah. can't be civil, you can't really engage in, in conversation with Republicans. But but this is the the conservative consolation, and, and you've hit on it, and it's what, what I've been talking about for a little while, which is that reality does reassert itself in the end. Objective reality, reason, it, it does come back. So no matter how pie in the sky the left gets and insists to us that men are really women and babies aren't babies and up is down and two plus two equals five. No matter how much they do that, no matter how much they force you to believe that, ultimately people are gonna realize that is not the case. When, when we hear talk of the silent majority, some people think we're referring to these secret rock-ribbed Republicans. That's not it at all. The silent majority is just normal people. They're <laughs> normal people who don't like to be lied to and, and who know that that simple facts are before them and they're they're gonna choose to believe their own lion eyes rather than w- whatever some leftist ideologue is going to tell them. Now, the, the one thing here, though, that conservatives need to be careful of, we can't get complacent. That would put us in the same position as the left, right? The left is saying we're marching inevitably toward this progressive utopia, and so we're, we're gonna have to end up there eventually. Well, conservatives might say the same thing about reality. Look, eventually if we just throw our hands up in the air, reality will reassert itself. Sure, but sometimes it takes a long time. The Soviet Union, to use just one example, persisted for 70 years under the weight of its own contradictions before it collapsed. And even then it only collapsed because of the willful actions of great men and and great nations, such as our own. So I think we we need to be able to, when we see reality, as best we see reality, we need to articulate that and we need to be willing to exercise political power when it is available to us to, to start to knock down this delusional Corrosive, really damaging ideological framework of the left.
0: Um, you talk about uh, the the way this sort of all boils down, um, and you know when you talk about the silent majority, there's that idea that something. I think there's some level where it just hits the normal person as. So obvious they can't help themselves but to agree with logic, you know, like when you're saying like, uh, hey, that that person who yesterday was a boy is now a girl because they've decided in their mind that they've changed genders like the average person hears that and goes like, I want to be nice to that person. But that's obviously just nuts. I think yes. the, in this moment of global pandemic, we've seen many, many uh, versions of the story. And perhaps most in my face, I feel like, for the average person, is they hear all these restrictions. And I'm not somebody who blows off COVID as nothing at all. Some of these things are really smart for us to do. Like, for example, staying out of massive rallies uh, and, (laughs) and riots in the middle of the street. And they see the same people who are telling us, no, you can't go to see your friends. No, you can't go see your family members. No, you can't go to your mother or your spouse's funeral. And yet they see them going to John Lewis's funeral. They see Black Lives Matter. It's okay for them to go out and rally. I think that's the type of thing that hits people at their core and is so internally and objectively offensive to people that it might just make a big difference when people go into the the voting booth at the end of the, uh, the beginning of November.
1: I absolutely agree. I mean, just on the brass tacks of politics, let's not forget the Trump campaign has registered many more voters than the Democrats have. And Republicans since 2016 have registered many more new voters, Mm -hmm. especially in key states, than the Democrats have. You don't hear about that in the mainstream media a lot, but that is in fact the case. And of course, people, even if they're not particularly you know, philosophically committed, uh, they'll, they'll look at that and say, wait a second, I'm not allowed to go to my grandma's funeral, but 100,000 people go to George Floyd's funeral, and the scientists are telling me only one of those is okay and not the other. I think there's also an appeal to be made to the left here. I mean, for one, I'm glad that the Trump campaign is now finally going after what you would call the silent majority for, for a couple of months. They seem to be trying to run to the left of Joe Biden. Mm. They, they were attacking Joe Biden for being too tough on crime as marauding <laughs> gangs were tearing down buildings. I mean, I, I just couldn't understand that strategy. But but now they seem to be flipping, and you saw there was a great ad they put out the other day of a woman, an elderly woman at home, and she tries to call 911 when someone breaks in, but the, the, the cops have been defunded. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sort of thing. I think they're, they're now moving in the right direction, but we should also be, be able to make an appeal to the left, which is this, you know, the left has outsourced their politics to the experts. That's the progressive vision. Woodrow Wilson outlined it explicitly. We're going to take decisions away from the people, we're going to put them in the hands of the experts. They're gonna tell us what to do. And if one day they tell us to that we have to wear masks, and then the next day they tell us we're not allowed to wear masks, that's perfectly fine. Don't think twice about it, just do as the experts say. And I think that, that obviously this leads to a, a very weakened populace, a very weakened citizenry, but we might be able to make the appeal to the left, that they ought to have a voice in politics too. And, and even they, the left wrong about so many things, sh- should not be willing to just outsource their voices to a bunch of ed- egghead experts who, who very frequently are, are more wrong than, than the average American voter.
0: Mm. Um, we have about one more minute here, Michael. Let me uh, just, just go to uh, just, you know, election stuff, base level, punditry, VP pick. I don't see anybody there who's a star. I think what they're trying to do is keep Biden essentially hidden and they're going to go low risk is my is my guess. Do you have a, 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 a person who you think it's going to be and who it should be?
1: I guess the favorite right now is Kamala Harris, even though it seems some people in the Biden campaign don't like her very much. Mm-hmm. Biden's really painted himself into, he's backed himself into a corner, which is in the name of diversity, he said that he's only gonna choose a very, very specific yeah. race and sex of of individual. So he, he he doesn't have very many choices. Susan Rice has a lot of baggage and Karen Bass is a communist. So I, I don't <laughs> think the two of them are gonna go very well. And, and Biden also has this trouble, which is that in a normal race, he would be able to balance out the ticket with someone perhaps from a different state, or perhaps who's a little bit more progressive than Joe who who fashions himself a moderate. But he's not able to do that because no one thinks Joe Biden's fit to be president. Mm. Uh, So, and, and frankly, no one thinks that he's gonna be making the decisions even if he is president. So the VP is gonna have to be more similar to him. And even Kamala Harris, who's the most moderate of the bunch, is radical and something tells me she's a little bit too radical for the American people.
0: Mm. Michael Knowles from the Daily Wire. He's the host of the Michael Knowles show book club at Prager U and of course, host uh, coast with Ted Cruz on the verdict. Uh, make sure to check that out as well. Michael, thanks for coming on the program, man.
1: Good to see us too. Thanks. All right.
0: Back in a second. So major league baseball is going to have to kind of figure this out eventually. Uh, Now we have uh, seven more players on the Cardinals testing positive, six staffers. They're quarantined in Milwaukee. Uh, You got to come up with something here, guys. Uh, You can't just keep delaying everybody's season by a week every time you get some positive tests. And for whatever reason, they are unable to keep this away from each other. This is one of the biggest things I've been saying about masks. And I don't know if I've said it on the show or not, but let me just spout it out here for a second. Masks seem to make a difference in a moderate way. I think I've talked about on the show the study uh, from the USS Roosevelt where they had a big outbreak. Lots of, uh, you know, um, uh, military were infected and about 80 percent of the ship was infected. Um, And what they talked about is of the 80 percent, the people who wore masks were able to reduce that infection rate to about 55 percent. So still more than half of them got it, but very close quarters and and, and, a, and pretty pretty much the worst case scenario for covid. The point is, it made a difference. It made more of a difference than social distancing. It made more of a difference than washing your hands. It made more of a difference than the, than the other safety measures. But it's not all encompassing. And we've come to this point where the left has become so insane about yelling at you for not wearing masks that people are like, just wear a mask. It's so selfish of you. If you just wear a mask, everything's going to be fine. Well, that's not true. I think it can make a difference, yes, uh, certainly with the you know bigger droplets and all these other things. but when you're talking about whether it's going to stop the pandemic, it's not. It's a safety measure that helps um, and what's happened is the left has gone on the media and, and made this into a, uh, you, you're a bad person if you don't wear a mask, because masks, we could just solve this thing and we'd all be rid of it. Well, that's not the way this works. Now people are so confident in these masks that they're abandoning social distancing, and they're abandoning all the other safety precautions. That's not going to help. It's not going to make this go away, and now people are wearing masks and you're seeing this, because all these baseball players are wearing them, and they keep getting this anyway. Um, that is becoming a, a kind of a, a big issue. Um, I will say this, though, one of the things we've talked about a lot in the conservative media is this, uh, in Texas in particular, there's a a statewide mandate where you wear masks. And if not, I think it's a $250 fine you can get. I would love to know if they've actually given out any of these fines. Remember, when policies like this come into play, there's two things governments do with them. Sometimes they really do want to fine you. Uh, it's, It's very possible. Other times, they just want to change your impression of what is important. They want you to be talking about masks and obsessing about masks because they think they're important for you to to wear. So they put in a regulation like this that ups the importance level. A lot of times, not even intending on actually fining people. I don't know if they're doing that yet, but I will say there's a there's a new one coming out in Houston where there's a two hundred fifty dollar fine, which is interesting because if you have a statewide mandate where they're fining people for not wearing masks, you don't need a local one. Right. Local one now in Houston is coming uh, into play. We'll get into the mass thing maybe later on, a little bit into the week. I've been thinking about doing a monologue on it anyway. Maybe we'll do that later on uh, this week. Uh, back in a second. How weird is the real estate market right now? Like, do, are you allowed to go see homes? Uh, I don't know. Do people coming over to see your home in person, or are they just buying these things on visual and virtual tours? It's, it's, not, it's a weird time to sell your home, um, but uh, every time you want to sell your home, it's a challenging process. You need the right real estate agent to come in and take charge of the situation to know what the hell they're doing and make sure that, you know what? Look, you want to have – we were joking about this uh, earlier today. Um, Glenn Beck is up for the Radio Hall of Fame, RadioVote.com. By the way, RadioVote.com is where you can go and vote on that. And I was like, real estate agents I trust is kind of like – it's like the Real Estate Agent Hall of Fame. People are, you know, they've already been screened. They've already shown they're the highest achiever. Unlike Glenn, they are not failing over and over again to get on the list. Uh, it's, a, I mean, Glenn may make the list this time. But I will say this, real estate agents I trust, when you find an agent on that website, you know, they've already made the Hall of Fame. They're already there. You're taking somebody who's already passed the most stringent restrictions to make sure you get a great real estate agent. And in this weird time of trying to buy or sell a house in COVID-19, you need it more than ever. Realestateagentsitrust.com is the place to go. Realestateagentsitrust.com. What the hell can I even do? It's a thought most of us are having a lot lately as we stare at the massive dumpster fire spreading through our country. It would be easy to feel powerless right now, uh, to feel like, I don't know, you want to help, but you don't know how. Left has goons literally tearing down cities in the name of political action. And even though you're doing everything the responsible way, it just feels kind of unfair. What do you do? Like your voice isn't as resonant as theirs. It is. And there are options. Will Witt from PragerU is here to talk to us about PragerU's Defend the Police campaign, which provides you with a toolkit for online activism. Will, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. You know, back the blue used to not be a tough thing to say. It used to be kind of what everyone sort of uh, agreed upon. That has massively changed pretty recently.
2: Oh yeah, it definitely has. I mean, police are treated horribly in this country. You see videos of police officers talking about how horribly they've been treated, and then in return, when they get treated horribly, they decide that they're not going to come to work, like the the things called the blue flu, and then they get defunded in these cities, and we've seen that crime, like in New York, uh, Minneapolis, Milwaukee, crime has gone up in all of these cities as, as they've started to defund the police. So people are gonna, hopefully soon enough, are gonna realize that the things that they're doing saying horrible things about the police is going to come around and bite them in the butt.
0: I get uh, maybe sometimes I think that maybe I'm spending too much time just listening to the lunatics. Like there's so many people online just saying crazy crap all the time. You see the people in Portland, you see the people in Seattle, you see the AOCs of the world. Uh, Where's the average person on this? I mean, are people still in that mode where they understand, you know what, the police are generally speaking, a pretty good thing?
2: It's I'm glad that you brought that up because, you know, I pride myself on what I do Uh, that I go out on the street and talk to people. I'm not just, you know, some keyboard warrior or someone on Twitter talking. I go out and I actually talk to people to find what they believe. And I find that what most people think is that the police are doing a bad job, but it's not because they're just you know, inherently hating the police because the police are doing such horrible things. It's because they're so misinformed. Like I talked to these this group of uh, black kids in Venice Beach, asking them about the police, and I said, "How many unarmed police, unarmed black men were killed by police last year?" They said, "Like 2,000, mm. right?" And it was fourteen. It was fourteen or nine. The numbers are. Well, for debate right now, 9 or 14, but mm-hmm. regardless. And they thought it was 1,500 people were killed by police unarmed last year. So they're misinformed. So when they're misinformed, of course, I give them every right to you know think the police are terrible. It's the mainstream media's fault. It's the university's fault for teaching people these wrong things.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, that, it's understandable that they would think this. You look at the way – when you talk about the way it feels right now, if you're just watching media coverage or talking to professors, you're going to feel like thousands and thousands uh, of incidents like this occur. And they don't. And, and so I go back to like thinking about because you talk to college you know, kids all the time. And do you th- are they a bunch of little AOCs? Are they a bunch of, you know, uh, socialist activists or is, is this just something where they've just been uninformed and when they get the right information, they come around?
2: I definitely think it's a little of both. So um, I think that there are a ton of people who are just incredibly misinformed. I mean, I was one of these people who before when I was in college, I saw, uh, you know, leftist things and I didn't really understand it, but I just went along with it. And then once I figured out conservative ideas, I mean, it totally changed my mind. I turned out to be all the common sense values I had actually turned out to be conservative. So I was changed over. But there are some people who are incredibly deep in their convictions who who want to hurt people who have a difference of opinion in them. I mean, this is what we're seeing around right now. In Portland, we're seeing it. Uh, in uh, Minneapolis with the protests here in Los Angeles as well. We've seen that. So these are people who actually want to go out there and cause harm to people who have a difference of opinion in them. And that's why this is so dangerous right now that you have the people who are trying to change, change minds and get them to, to see the actual truth and the facts. But then you have these people who are doing evil things in our country as well. So it makes it very hard to have a, a clean conversation about anything.
0: Mm. Yeah, fu- fundamentally, conservatives have always had a problem with younger voters and I think there's some real like sort of foundational reasons for that. And that like, you know, you're never going to make personal responsibility cool. You know, you're never going to make, you know, spreadsheets that prove that lower taxes are better is not the best way to pick up ladies. Um, I I don't know how how do you how do you get this to uh, younger voters and and have them kind of go through that thought process that usually only comes uh, with age?
2: Yeah, I show a lot of girls my W two from here in California, and they're not too impressed by it. I have to say, but no, I've been talking about this actually a lot on my podcast. Is that the right and conservatives don't have a clear vision for America? You know, you look at the left. In ten years, we want the police to fund it. In ten years, we want to get rid of fossil fuels. We want everyone to have the exact same rights. You know, whatever it might be, they have this plan. These young people, people my age, are getting out of college. They're totally in debt because college is so expensive. They can't get a good job because uh, a lot of our jobs are being shipped overseas, and so then like you know, what are they supposed to do? But they see the left. They have this clear vision for America. They're like, I'm going to latch on to that because I don't have anything else to do with my life. And the right doesn't have anything like that, really pushing people and saying, this is what you should be going for. These things are going to make your life better. It's all just a, a defense against the left. Every single thing that the right and conservatives push for is only just a defense against the left. We need to start going on the mm. attack and pushing for our own values and ideas. If we do that, people are going to think that we're more confident. They're going to think that our idea is better and, actually put, and can actually put them into practice to make their lives better without that we're going to keep losing these voters
0: yeah that's a great point because i mean aoc says a lot of things you know i would call them both aspirational and dumb um, but but aspirational is an important part of that. Like, I mean, the idea you're going to get off fossil fuels in eight years is just dumb. It's just a stupid thing to say. But at least it feels like you're going for a goal when we say, well, we'd like to phase in 12 nuclear plants over the next 10 years. There's that doesn't make anybody feel anything. And I think like that's been a big problem um, of, of this whole interaction. You know, there's the the idea of persuasion and there's the idea of emotion and a lot of times we on the right try to use persuasion We try to use logic to win these arguments, but you know emotions a big factor, especially for younger voters. How do you overcome that?
2: It definitely is. I mean, with, with what I do with my interviews, I mean, I think why I've been so successful at changing so many people's minds on so many different issues is because I make them kind of use their own emotions against themselves. (laughs) Like I don't go in and get emotional with them, but I make them get emotional because I make it so that they have to explain their rationale back to me, you know? So I ask them the questions and keep leading them in a way so that they have to actually explain what they believe. And when they find out that they can't do that, then they get more emotional. You know, it's not just saying here's why you should believe that fossil fuels won't uh we can't change within the next 10 years it's like well why do you think that and you keep going along that train of thought and then they actually come to the conclusion themselves which is i guess a more emotional approach through persuasion as well yeah so that's what i've been doing and it's been it's been really successful and i think that if we actually you know as conservatives stop trying to just make content online and and do things that are just for conservatives and try to do things that are going to change more minds i think we can actually do it
0: yeah, because that moment of, of revealed truth is a really powerful moment. When you actually can convince yourself and come to a conclusion on your own, that's how your mind changes for a really long time rather than just, you know, during a conversation. Is that the kind of moment you're always looking for in these videos?
2: It definitely is, you know, and kind of like we were talking about earlier. I mean, you, if you've seen my videos on Prager.com, I mean, they, a lot of them say stupid things, right? <laughs> but I don't ever want to make it seem like these people are stupid. You know, that's never been my intention. My paramount principle with all this has always been to change minds. And if you make them look stupid or blame them for being stupid all the time, you're not going to be able to do that. You know, blame the universities, blame the mainstream media, blame social media, blame these Hollywood celebrities who push these kind of things, you know, that are for these impressionable young people on college campuses. I don't blame them for saying things that are totally misinformed. I go out there to first expose what is happening to them and then secondly to change minds.
0: Um, Let's go back to the uh, the idea of something aspirational for conservatives. Uh, what is the sell here? Because, I mean, part of I think the, the success, the successful sell for conservatives is the free market that we've created and, and implemented have brought you basically everything you enjoy in your life, your iPhone, every, every bit of technology, everything that kind of outside of just basic human interaction that you, you have in your life was brought to you by the free market. It's a powerful tool and it's something that we've been pitching for and having to defend against uh, the, you know, the, the, the tearing down of this idea all this time. Is is that the right path to try to sell people on on conservatism as something exciting rather than just a bore fest?
2: I do th- think think that that is half of the answer. I also think that we as conservatives need to be pretty focused on crony capitalism as well. That we need to be that's needs to be something mm. that we really push against. You know, you have these gino- ginormous corporations here in America that make it very hard for you know someone who wants to go start I don't know let's say a carpentry company and then. Home Depot comes and basically undercuts them for everything they do, and this happens all across America. Picking yourself up by your bootstraps is a lot harder in America nowadays because of these big corporations and because all of the regulations that government puts in place. I mean, if it was me trying to to, to make it so that people were excited about starting their own business or starting a family or anything like this, it's, it's really a fight against the government. It's a fight against bureaucracy. It's a fight against these people who claim to have our best interests at heart who are not doing that whatsoever. I mean, I think those are the things that we should fight against. I think that gives you know, people who are coming up as young conservatives or whatever, an actual enemy or someone that they can look to to say, I wanna battle against this person because they're making my life worse. They're making my family's life worse. You know, right now it's kind of just uh, you know, believe in the free market and your iPhone, it's all perfect. You know? And that's what we need to push on. It's like there is an actual enemy out there and things that are going wrong that we need to actually push against that we can do a lot better job marketing for.
0: Okay, last one on the on the police. Um, There is this uh, world we're living in right now where police are out there doing their job, getting pelted with rocks, getting pelted with bottles, getting fireworks thrown at them. Uh, All these terrible things happening to police. It's all on video. Then we go to watch the news, then social media from all these major news companies comes out and the exact opposite story is told. They find the one incident where maybe a police officer is a little too rough. That thing dominates the coverage for the day. People, despite the fact that thousands of these videos exist, people still aren't believing that the police are generally doing a good job and these protesters slash rioters are the real problem. How on earth do you cross that and that divide and, and make it so that people can understand what the truth is?
2: You know, that's a really good question. I wish that I had the answer. If I had the answer, I'd be doing it already <laughs> because we're so divided. Mm. But I can say that, again, it is about information. So, people, I mean, I think social media makes it so that people get incredibly biased information. I mean, the algorithms are literally set up so that if you're a conservative, you only see conservative content. If you're a leftist, you'll probably only see leftist content. It's good for people that if you're someone who has conservative ideas and you see someone who is on the left or might think police are terrible or anything like that, I mean, you should be going out and talking to these people and trying to change their minds. If you're too scared to say you're a conservative or say that you want to defend the police, then you're all these people around you are just going to continue to believe the things they do. It's on your shoulders. You have to take the per- personal responsibility as a conservative and stand up and actually push against these people. If you don't, it just continues to get worse.
0: Well, PragerU and Will Witt have both done a really great job putting together and giving you the tools uh, that you can do this online. They've got the Back the Blue thing going on right now. Go to PragerU, check out Will's podcast as well. All the information is there. Will, thanks so much for coming on the program.
2: Hey, thank you for having me. All right. Back in a second.
0: Let me tell you a little bit about the behind the scenes stuff here. You know, we're a little baby show just started a few months ago. We've grown really successfully, I think, so far. But we could screw this up at any time, let's be honest about it. Thank you so much for making it happen. Um, one of the big ways that we can get people to actually find out that this show exists, of course, is you know these reviews. And I, I know this process kind of is annoying, but it's really the only one I know of. Um, and it does really help. If you're on YouTube, clicking like, if you, if you can do the review, the five stars is the appropriate amount of stars. It really does help. We do have a review from uh, iTunes today. Uh, good work from Elliot. He says, the the right amount of stupefying stupendous stupidity or whatever five freaking stars that's how this works we really appreciate you uh showing up every day i mean it's the only reason i'm showing up is because you show up if you stop showing up i'm stopping showing up that's the, that's the i mean they're gonna kick me off but please keep showing up and then i'll come too. see you tomorrow